From the Thinking Out Loud studios, it's the Thinking Out Loud podcast with Kevin and Kyle, the podcast that exists to help you navigate the culture of today from a biblical perspective and to help you grow in your relationship with God. God has commissioned and called you to be a light in this culture. The only way you can do that is to know the truth. No matter what circumstance you're facing, no matter what season of life that you're in, if you truly want to find success in that season, you are going to have to go back to the simple question of what does God say about me in this moment? There's no shortage of information in this culture, but there is a shortage of truth. Welcome back to the Thinking Out Loud podcast with Kevin and Kyle. My name is Kevin Wilson, and I've got Kyle Wenzel here, and we're in the Thinking Out Loud studios, and we're excited to have all of you back for this week's episode. And again, I think I said this last week, but we are extremely excited of all the feedback we're getting. We are close to about a thousand downloads now. We have people listening all over the world. And so just want to say hello to our friends in Canada and the Philippines and Belgium and the UK and Australia just all over the place. People are listening and we appreciate all of you. And we're excited to bring you great content every single week. And so this is just a, just something we're going to go into today. It's one of our most requested topics. Kyle and I, we talked a little bit uh, about mental health a few episodes ago, and we kind of talked about our personal journeys. And we said to you that we were going to have a professional on. Well, we have that professional on today, and we are super excited to bring you just a a really informed discussion around mental health, whether it's anxiety, depression, PTSD, all of those things. We are extremely excited to bring those to you. Yeah, I'm, I'm personally excited. Obviously, Kevin, we talked about our journeys personally with mental health and after the Facebook Live and the suggestions that we've gotten, I'm excited that we're able to bring something today that we know has specifically been asked for by our audience. And so I'm excited and honored to introduce to you Dr. Jeff Caldwell, who is a professional counselor at Wounded Heart Counseling in Flat Rock, Michigan. He's been a counselor now for 11 years, graduated from Ashland Theology Seminary, and I'm really excited to hear what he is going to bring to the table today, tonight with the, the conversation. Uh, but real quick, real quick, Kevin, you and I were pre-show and Dr. Jeff is on with us now, so he's going to hear this for the first time as well. But I just found out that Kevin wasn't always, but is now, allergic to chocolate and peanut butter. And I'm not only intrigued to find out when you found out you were allergic, but <laughs> the exact moment and the details as to how. Because I know it was when you were ingesting it. So why don't you elaborate a little bit with us on how you found out you were allergic to two of the most tasty foods in the world. Right. Yeah. So funny thing, I um, what I had started doing, because I'm a big uh, cake and cookies and all that kind of sweets kind of guy. And uh, so I had this idea that because cake was so much bread and all the carbs and all of that stuff. I said, you know what, why don't I, because I love chocolate, and I was like, why don't I start having just a small candy bar or just a little bit of candy each day instead of having cake and cookies and pies and all that other type of stuff, you know, because chocolate is so sweet 
and that, you know, if you eat just a little bit of it, sometimes you can kind of, you know, get rid of that sweet tooth that you have. And so I had been doing that. I had some awesome Ghirardelli chocolates um, that I always had on hand. Um, so I'd eat a square or two. And so one night, I, it was a Sunday night. I'll never forget it. And I was eating chocolate just like I n- always, always did. I was sitting on the couch with my wife. I had a Reese's. And I, all of a sudden, I, I told my wife, I said, I feel like somebody's choking me. And she and 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 she just kind of looked at me and I said, yeah, like I it just and so I just kept sitting there. I think we were watching TV or something. And then it got worse. And I said, like, literally, I feel like somebody's hands are around my neck. Like, this is not something's not right. And so I just got up. I said, you know, stay here. Don't let don't worry about it. I said, I'm going to run down to the ER. I said, because something's just not right. And uh, I said, if there's something big, I'll, I'll call you. And so I get down to the ER and of course, you know, the first thing that they looked at, because I've, I have some, some heart issues and they, they wanted to make sure I wasn't having a heart attack, you know, cause my chest felt like there was a balloon in my chest and, yeah. and I felt like I was, you know, I couldn't breathe. And so they, uh, they, you know, put me on this, they, you know, put me on everything. Obviously they sent me through all of these tests. And the crazy thing is that night is not the night that I found out that I was allergic to chocolate. It wasn't until, because they, they just wanted to make sure I wasn't having a heart attack. And they were like, yep, you're not having a heart attack. Everything looks good. I go to my doctor uh, about two or three days later and get an allergy test and come to find out that I'm allergic to chocolate. And that's what was going on. And my throat was closing up on me. So, uh, <laughs> so uh, you know, so literally I went from that whole week eating chocolate, no problem, all my life to sitting down eating the Reese's and realizing, and it wasn't until later on after that, that I found out that I was allergic to peanut butter. I walked into a, a Texas roadhouse that I had walked into many, many times because I love food. Um, and, uh, <laughs> and, and, you know, they have, they have peanuts all over the floor. Like, you know, if, if you've never been into a Texas roadhouse, it's crazy. It's just peanuts everywhere. And uh, I, I walk in, and my lips started tingling, my mouth started tingling, like just, you know, and I was like, oh my goodness, now I'm allergic to, uh, to peanuts and peanut butter. So yeah. And <laughs> so that's how that happened. <laughs> so uh, honestly, that's like one of the worst ways to find out one of, first of all, that's one of the worst combinations to be allergic to. Yeah, uh, for my, sure. My, uh, sympathy. Uh, but, um, but I've always thought, like, you know, you find out you're allergic to nickel, it's because you wore a belt buckle, and you're like, oh, I got a rash. You find yep. out you're allergic to, like, poison ivy or poison oak, you're like, oh, I got a rash. You find out you're allergic to, like, seafood or chocolate, and it's because your throat's swelling up and you literally think you're going to die. Like that, right. Like, that's got to be one of the worst ways to find out you're allergic to something. Uh, yeah, 100%. And then after that, I found out I was allergic to almost everything else. Like milk and corn and hazelnut and I mean you you name it, just almost everything that I love. I love corn and I love cereal. I'll eat five bowls of cereal in one sitting, no problem. Um, <laughs> but I haven't done that in a few years because now I'm allergic to cow's milk. So wow. it's yeah, it's crazy. But <laughs> we could we could do a whole show on that, um, right? Yeah. But hey, hey, let's get in. Let's get into the conversation tonight. Awesome. Jeff, it is, is an honor to have you on the show. Thank you yes, for joining is. us tonight. 
Absolutely. Good to be here. Yeah. Real quick, Jeff. So you, you know, you specialize in a trauma focused therapy. And so it's obviously going to be a trauma informed approach. Can you give us a little bit of background on what we mean when we say a trauma informed approach, when we're talking to things like anxiety, when we're talking about things like mental illness and depression, can you give us a little bit of insight on that? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, one of the things that's really interesting is from a trauma-informed or trauma-focused approach, I don't really think of anxiety or depression as a diagnosis or like as a cause. I think of it more as a symptom. Uh, in fact, I wouldn't even hesitate to use the word mental illness in that respect. Not that I don't believe that there's, of course, cases of mental illness, but when your trauma per se is not a mental illness. Trauma is actually the body and the nervous system's reaction to an overwhelming experience and therefore is actually sort of a normal reaction. The problem is when it becomes, you know, repeated over time, when it's triggered and it comes up in, in various ways. So anxiety can be understood really as a fight or flight sort of reaction, which mm -hmm. falls parameters of trauma. Depression can actually be considered a symptom as well um, because one of the physiological states that a person may go into when the trauma is triggered is what we call shutdown collapse. And in shutdown collapse, the parasympathetic nervous system tends to downregulate the body, limiting the amount of energy that's flowing. It's trying to literally conserve in order to save or preserve somebody's life in a tragic sort of event. So the, the symptoms or the feelings that come up, the things people experience when they are experiencing a fight or flight reaction or a shutdown collapse reaction really mirrors what is commonly understood as anxiety or as commonly understood as depression. Awesome. What are, uh, real quick, what are some commonalities that you see in your profession um, when it comes to anxiety and depression, those who suffer from anxiety and depression? Yeah. So speaking of uh, sort of the symptoms or the presentation, is that what you mean? Yeah. So, yeah. So with anxiety, typically you're going to see symptoms where uh, everything from racing thoughts to a rapid heartbeat you're going to see uh, uh, some people experience a hot sort of flushed feeling in their face and their body. Uh, muscle tension, irritability is very common. Anger and rage episodes can be very common during an anxiety episode. It affects sleep patterns. So we refer to that as either hypo or hypersomnia. So people will sleep too much hypersomnia or they won't sleep enough which is hyposomnia. And um, also, oftentimes there's this like brain fog that people experience. It's what mm -hmm. they describe. So it's sort of an inability or a difficulty to concentrate or to focus their attention. Worries, excessive worry that is very difficult to stop or control. And a lot with anxiety. In depression, actually, some of the symptoms are, of depression are actually very similar to anxiety with the exception of a few uh, standalones, which would be the recurrent and excessive thoughts of death, sidality, so thoughts of committing or taking your own life is, is common. 
Again, this interrupted sleeping patterns, changing in eating habits as well. Some people will tell me that, man, they just been eating constantly. And other people will say they just can't seem to eat at all. Mm-hmm. And a, a sad, a, just a general sad, depressed sort of mood, lethargy, you know, just a, a loss of interest in daily activities. You know, I will hear, for instance, from certain clients that, you know, man, I used to love to to fish. Or I'd love to play sports. And, you know, right now I just don't want to get off the couch. I don't want to do anything. I don't have any desire for the things I used to enjoy. So those are some real common things that I'll typically see when people present on the first time I meet them, you know, with those symptoms. Doctor, what about some of the physiological things? So, you know, what about some of those things like people having stomach problems or, you know, digestion issues, acid reflux, stuff like that? Because I have heard and, you know, we've talked we talked about our story on the show and I'm currently on medicine for an anxiety disorder. And so I know some of the things that were happening with me, whereas I would, my stomach would always hurt I, pretty much every day. You know, I would have issues with digestion. I did get those flush feelings all the time. You know, I, you know, I would yawn a lot when I was, you know, going through that. So are these all signs? Because I, I want to make sure just because that was my experience. I mean, you, I want to talk, you know, talking to an expert, I want to make sure that are these all signs also of, of anxiety as well? Uh, those are very common comorbidities. So often accompanying anxiety, it's not necessarily indicative of anxiety, but I can tell you this, uh, Kevin, I don't know of very many anxiety disordered folks that I've worked with that don't have some of what you just described. Mm. Um, it, it, but you know what, what I usually will encourage my clients to do is to go to their doctor to do what I call a medical rule. So yeah. go tell them, you know, if they're presenting with symptoms of, of like you just described, I'm thinking anxiety disordered, you know, resulting from some kind of a traumatic experience, but I want to make sure that there is not, some, not something else going on. If somebody comes and they're really experiencing depressive like symptoms, I will ask them to go do the same thing. Go get a physical, have some blood work. We can determine whether or not this is driven by a true onset of anxiety or depression, or is it something physiological? Because people who suffer from hormonal imbalances, for instance, um, or to suffer from hypothyroidism, the, the symptoms physiologically uh, of those two things can really mirror depression and anxiety. And uh, if you're not careful, you're treating somebody with an antidepressant who really needs some type of hormonal treatment or some medication for their thyroid. So you got to make sure that you you know, that they do their diligence so that I do my diligence to make sure that we can rule out any medical causes. Yeah. And, and I'm glad, I'm glad you said that because there's a question on here that asks the question, like, what are some ways to tell if a symptom in our body is a real health symptom or if it's the anxiety that's making us feel those symptoms? And part of why I really have never ever tried to go go get counseling until I needed it was simply because I I just always believed the stigma of well they're just going to give me some sort of medication you know what I'm saying and so to so to hear to hear a professional say 
I would prefer them and I even refer them to go see their, their medical doctor to make sure nothing else is going on because you don't want to misprescribe them something when they really need help in a different area. So that's promising to hear. Uh, so, so thank you for that. And, you know, I, I will say this too, Kyle, you know, it is sometimes difficult to, 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 to know for sure, to discern whether somebody's experiencing a literal physical problem that requires a medical doctor's attention or whether it is a symptom of some type of emotional or, or trauma related mm-hmm. occurrence. If they go and their doctor pretty much clears them and says, can't find anything medically wrong with you, then I'm pretty confident we're dealing with a, a psychological or traumatic or emotional issue or something like that. Okay. So to add to that, you know, we're talking about how do we know if it's clinical or if it, you know, if it's, if it's something, you know, a seasonal. So there's a question on here and it says this, for some people, it seems inevitable that depression will be something that they face on a daily basis. Uh, the question is, what are some ways to cope through the day while facing depression? But I want to take it a step further and ask you, how do you know that the anxiety or the depression that you're facing is beyond seasonal and it's it's an actual clinical issue? Like, What are some of the ways to determine whether or not you, you may just be going through an emotional setback rather than you need you need to get some clinical help? Yeah, yeah. That's a good question. And uh, the first thing I would say to that is usually if a person is facing something that's a seasonal, if you, as you call it seasonal, I, I would think of it more um, the way I typically think of it as event driven. Yeah. Something on in their life that sort of explains it. You know, for instance, they just lost a spouse or they're going through a divorce or they just lost their job or they're working at a job that's just so high pressure and stress then I'm not really surprised that they're experiencing these symptoms that they're experiencing, but I'm not necessarily at that point convinced that this is a, unless they've had a history of these types of things before, if they have a history of it and now they're going through this particular event and they're feeling and going through all this, I'm more apt to just then try to help them work through what they're dealing with more as an event driven situation as opposed to in anxiety terms, we think of what we call free floating anxiety. Mm. So there's not a cause that you can pin down. There's not an event that you can, that you can point to. It's just this vague free floating feeling or sense. That's a totally different, you know, animal. So uh, yeah, that's a good question. And if it's clinical, it's going to last. It's not, you know, it usually if it's clinical, there's not necessarily an event. Like I said, or something you can con- connect to it or point to it. Mm-hmm. Usually the symptoms are usually going to be uh, pretty pretty serious. They're causing some serious impairment in their daily living. You know, their quality of life, their quality of living is suffering. Their relationships are suffering, you know, and it's been going on for a while, and it's probably happened before. Yeah. 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 I think, you know, there's a huge difference between stage fright, right? You know, you're getting in front of a bunch of people and maybe you've never done a speech before the class before or something like that, rather than, you know, you're now you're not eating or you're, you know, you can't go out of the house, you know, unless you're having some type of anxiety attack or you feel like you're having a heart attack because, you know, even every time you try to leave the home and that's kind of, yeah, and that's kind of what I was going through 
where it was actually affecting. I mean, my, my wife, and I said this in the last show, my wife had to cancel my surprise birthday party at my favorite restaurant because I, I could not fathom the thought of being there. Like it, it just, it, it just sent me into an, a panic attack. And so those type of things, when it's, you know, intruding on your life, I have a question for you, doctor, about children, teens, and adults. So, because we have a lot of parents listening too, is there a difference in some of the symptoms or how those things display themselves in a child versus maybe a teenager versus an adult? You know, I, because I, I know that, you know, my, my daughter has dealt with some of it and she's only 12 years old at the moment, but she, she dealt with it because of a side effect from a medication that she was taking for ADD. And so she, I mean, it was, it was debilitating. I mean, it, I mean, she loves movies. She loves to get out and have fun. She didn't even want to go to the movies. And she, you know, we'd stand in line for popcorn and she's crying because she's afraid to go into the, you know, but it was, but when we took her off of that medicine, then everything changed. So is there differences, you know, if parents are listening, going, well, I don't know if my kid's going through this. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. Yeah. Um, let me preface it by saying that I work with adults, so I, I'm not an expert when it comes to adolescents and children, but I will say this. Sure. Children definitely present differently than an adult would. And, in, and usually a child with depression symptoms, for instance, you're going to see a lot of anger. You're going to see some acting out behaviors, along with the fact that you're going to see a, a, a marked change and their total, uh, you know, their behavior just all of a sudden is different. Mm. And the reason that it's different for a child is a child emotionally at that particular developmental stage, they don't have, a, they don't have the ability to conceptualize or contextualize what they're going through. Mm-hmm. They, they have, oftentimes they don't even have the language skills to put into words what they're feeling. Mm. So what a child is going to do, and we use this term acting out all the time, but if you ever, I don't know if you've, if you've ever really thought about where that term comes from, a child who cannot talk about their feelings, cannot explain it, doesn't even understand it, the only thing they do is act, act it out. Yeah. So what see them doing is, is literally a display. It's like their feelings are on stage right before you. Mm. You just observe their behavior. Like your daughter, obviously, you know, she was making it very, very clear. I'm afraid. There's a lot of fear there. Thank God you're able to find out that it was related to her medication. Mm-hmm. But a child's just going to, you're just going to see those feelings on display in behavior. Whereas adults oftentimes, well, you know, they'll hide it or they'll mitigate it with drugs, alcohol, food, you know, relationships, you know, work. Sure. Uh, can't do that. Mm-hmm. And it has the ability to sort of conceptualize and contextualize what they're feeling and maybe even talk about it to a spouse or a friend, a child. They, they just can't. So they're going to act. So I always tell parents, look for uh, rapid and dramatic sort of shifts and changes in behavior mm-hmm. when there's nothing that you can put your finger on. If they're acting out, uh, if there's a anger, pay attention to the anger. If they are, if their behavior becomes sort of antisocial or defiant, you know, the first thing, you know, I'm a parent, I'm a grandparent. And, you know, I 
wonder when my kids acted out like that, I'm, I'm going to deal with them. I'm going to discipline them. Well, sometimes they're not really misbehaving. They're trying to tell a story. Mm-hmm. You have to learn to sort of tune into that and just pay attention. I tell them, parents also, approach your children. You know, think of question mark, not exclamation mark. Think mm-hmm. of, you know, approach them with curiosity. Ask them questions. Get them to talk to you. Don't go in there with an attitude of, I know what's going on and I'm going to fix it. Mm-hmm. That, that just really sort good. of makes the child feel worse. Yeah, that's very good. That's a that's a very good point. Yes, it is. Um, talk to me a little bit about, and and we've talked about this, but talk to me a little bit about the realm of what if. There's a question about, you know, w- what are some ways to overcome the sinking thoughts and fears of, what could happen? And it instantly made me think of living in the realm of what if, how dangerous it is to do that. And um, just explain to us how, how we can get out of that realm. Because it's, to me, it was a lot easier said than done. But talk to us a little bit about that. I know America in itself, it really hinges on performance. It hinges on results. And so the typical American home is probably living in the realm of what if, even if they're not aware of it. So talk to us a little bit about that. Yeah. So so I'm going to bring this one sort of back to, um, we have to go back a long way here. We're going to go back to the beginning, and I believe the way God initially created and designed hmm. you and I as human beings, right? And if you go all the way back, and uh, whether you know whether a person believes in a literal Adam and Eve and a literal Garden of Eden or a metaphorical one, you know, the teaching there is still pretty much the, the same sort of idea. I'm old school, so I, I have a whole interpretation of that. But if you think about what, what was this whole atmosphere like way back in the beginning, according to the Bible in the book of Genesis, that we were originally created and designed to live in this uninterrupted experience of the presence of God. And we would then, in order to have done that, which that would have meant we had to actually occupy and dwell in the realm of God, which would have been the spiritual world, the spiritual dimension in which God lives. God lives outside of time. And so I think that we were originally designed to live outside of, or rather, yeah, outside of, the realm or the world of time. We were originally created as immortal beings, you know, in the equation. So that was the way our mind, our brain, our bodies, everything was originally designed by God to thrive. That was the context in which we would thrive. Enter the fall. And I believe that when humankind fell, we fell out of time into time. And therefore, we fell into a world or a realm in which we were not designed to thrive. Mm. And so what happens there is our brain is constantly struggling with this idea of learning to live our lives within the context of the here and now, the present moment. Our brains will usually now go to the future and that creates a lot of anxiety, a lot of fear, or our brains will oftentimes get stuck and mired in the regrets of the past 
And that tends to create sad, depressed sort of moods, shame-induced sort of down moods. And so we are designed by God to live in the world of what is. And we are not designed by God to thrive in the world of what if. Yeah. And what happens oftentimes is why I think it so dramatically affects our emotional and mental health is that our culture inundates us with the need or the necessity to always be thinking and planning and working towards what if. And we learn very little and there's very little about living in what is, except for this exploding sort of, it's not a theory, but this exploding world of what we call mindfulness and mindfulness training and meditation. And I chuckle whenever I'm uh, reading about mindfulness in the literature because Christianity and Jude Judaism and Christianity has known about mindfulness for thousands of years. Yeah. Like the whole idea is learning to live in the present moment, learning to be present and experience God in the present moment when we're able to do that. And I wish I had the time I could share numerous examples of clients that I've worked with who are so stuck in everything we tried, you know, with psychology and, and uh, behavioral science. It just wasn't working. And when I asked them if they'd be interested in trying to just spend an entire session where I could help position them to connect with God, some of them just had a major breakthrough in that one session. And we moved more in one session than we probably moved in two months. And what they did was maybe for the first time in their life, they spent an entire 30, 45, 50 minutes just embraced and enveloped and surrounded by the presence of God. And in that connection, they were at home. Mm. They went back to the garden. Mm. And it, the, the health, the well-being that comes from that, matter of fact, that's actually what my doctoral training is in, is in something Dr. Terry Rodel created called formational counseling. And it's the idea of being able to bring people into the presence of the Holy Spirit so that Jesus can come and minister to them in the places of their deep wounds. It's a, it's a spiritual-based trauma therapy that I've seen do amazing things. So I don't know, Kyle, did I answer your question? I kind of got off on a little bit of other stuff. Didn't I want to make sure I address I, that. I love it. I love it. Um, yeah. But what are some, so I, again, yeah, I love it. Now, someone like me who lives in the realm unfortunately of what if from time to time still i i i can through the counseling that i've had i can recognize that and i'm able to ground myself get myself back into the what is um and that's been just through the exposure of the therapy however for somebody who that may not be going through that therapy because i i couldn't personally get myself out of that that was something that i needed to be taught i needed to be made aware of so how can somebody I guess, how can they do that? How can they walk themselves back from the what if into the what is? Are there any kind of techniques? Is there any kind of mental process? Well, I'll start with just a really cool catchphrase. Lose your mind, come to your senses. Yep. Lose your mind, come to your senses. It's all about using your God-given senses, smell, sight, smell, taste, touch, hearing, all of that, to come out of your head because where do we go when we enter the world of what if 
where are we? We're in our head. That's mm-hmm. where we're at, mm-hmm. right? Uh, we may, we, and sometimes our head may be stuck in another part of our anatomy, but mostly, <laughs> you know, we are we are in our head so much we can't come out of our head. So when we when we practice this, lose your mind, come to your senses. It's all we're doing is we're going to use our senses to come out of our head and re-engage with our surroundings. It is as simple. Sometimes I just have people just take their shoes off and let their feet rub the carpet. Mm. Just used to, and it sounds almost like really they're paying you to, to do that. But if you mm. what they're doing is they're, it's called grounding techniques. So, or I'll have them, sometimes I'll have them close their eyes and just sort of imagine being in this wonderful safe place and think about that safe place and picture, use your mind's eye to picture, you know, what makes you feel safe. Anything they can do with the senses mm-hmm. um, to ground them, to come out of their, out of their head, so to speak. And, and if I can, let me give you just a little bit of science behind that. There's a part of our brain called the thalamus, if I'm not mistaken, if there's other physicians or doctors out there, excuse me, pretty sure it's the thalamus. And all of our sensory information that we take in via our senses, so what we see, what we hear, what we smell, is processed through the thalamus and then sent to the amygdala, which is the brain's smoke alarm or fire alarm or smoke detector. So once that sensory information goes to the amygdala, the amygdala then determines, is this safe or is this threatening? If it determines if our senses are taking in something that's threatening, then it triggers the alarm and we go into that fight, flight, or freeze reaction, or we may go into that shutdown, withdrawal, collapse reaction. However, when our senses are bringing in cues of safety, calmness, and serenity and peace, then our brain just calms right down. Mm-hmm. So really cool trick, and it is falls underneath the parameters of mindfulness, is to simply use your senses, whether you're just, you're outside and you're just looking at a beautiful big white puffy cloud, you're smelling your favorite smell. You know, I, I'll take my first cup of coffee in the morning. I don't know if you guys are coffeeholics like I am, and I'll just pick it up and I will just smell it, close my smell it. And I calm down. I love that smell. It's a smell like a a mental time travel experience. It can take you so many different places. So fast. Using your senses to reconnect with your environment, with your surroundings, pulls you out of your head, which is the world of what if, and grounds you in the world of what is. And most of the time, for most of us, the world of what is is not a bad place. Right. We got a bed to sleep in tonight. We've got food to eat. We, we've, got, we've got a lot of good things going on. Now, I get it. There are some people who are living in very different circumstances, and what is for them is a different experience, and I get that. But for most people, they can ground themselves in their surroundings and literally move out of the world of what if and into the world of what is. And it's a, it's something that the more you practice, the more your brain can just sort of go there. Yeah, it's from experience. It's got to be a habit. 
you know, because like you were saying, and I, that's why I loved what you said about the garden, because it's constantly, we are just fighting flesh, right? And so we're going to have, you know, the typical person is going to have a, a bout of anxiety or a bout of depression. And, and it could possibly very well just be because they are exiting the realm of what is into the realm of what if, and whichever way your brain goes, you're going to experience some repercussions to that. And so I just know, I, I just know personally, just even from my circle, the realm of what if is just a big deal. And I think that if we can get ahead on that and we can educate ourselves on keeping an eye on the what if realm, I think we'll go a long way, you know? And so Jeff, you had, you had mentioned in the beginning of the show that you have a trauma focus and we got a couple messages about PTSD in general. And I remember in my counseling session, the first time I heard PTSD, I, I didn't, I almost felt like that can't be real. You know what I'm saying? Like, that's only for war veterans. That's for somebody who's been through a physical traumatic, like, you know what I'm saying? Like, I, I almost didn't feel like I was brave enough, almost a strong, you know, like courageous enough to have that happen. But I do know that PTSD can rear itself in many different ways in people. And can you explain to us just a little bit how PTSD relates to anxiety and depression in people? And before you do that, doctor, can you just for just for our listeners, what is PTSD? Like when you hear that stuff thrown around, like what actually is PTSD? Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, it, you know, it stands for post-traumatic stress disorder. And uh, I will say this, that in order to be diagnosed with PTSD, it's a pretty extensive diagnostic criteria. Most people don't even meet the diagnostic criteria. However, a lot of people are struggling with post-traumatic stress. So I wanted to say that off the, at, the, at the outset that you don't have to have the full-blown diagnostic disorder in order right. to suffer a lot of the components. Post-traumatic stress is a beast. Yeah. And a lot of people suffer from it. So to understand what post-traumatic stress is, we need to understand the nature of trauma. What is trauma? So when we think of trauma, I think Kyle even referred to it. We typically think of, you know, uh, the war veterans who come back from Afghanistan. We think of victims of violence, violent crime, rape. We think of natural disasters like hurricanes, floods, and fires. And that's true. You know, those are very common traumatic-inducing experiences. But the way that we understand trauma now is not to think of trauma as an event because there can be 10 people who survive some horrible experience and only one or two or three come out with post-traumatic stress issues. So it's it's not the event itself. It's the way that we experience it. Trauma is not an event. Trauma is the body's brain and nervous system's experience or inability to integrate and tolerate whatever this experience is. So if something is so horrific, scary, uh, violent, or whatever, that a person is unable to integrate that. They, then they're overwhelmed by it. And so when a person is overwhelmed rather than 
when integration rather does not occur, what happens is that experience does not move through the brain system the way a normal experience does. A normal experience will move through the brain processing system and it's a lot more complex than what I'm sharing now, but bottom line is it ends up in the long-term memory part of the brain that we call the hippocampus. When a person experiences something that their brain and their nervous system is not able to integrate, it doesn't go to the hippocampus to be stored as a long-term memory. So what happens is that that memory network becomes locked out and frozen sort of in time. It's like instead of, well, let me say it this way. When a person is experiencing post-traumatic stress, they will typically describe it like this. I'm still feeling how that felt. In other words, the past is still present. When a person has experienced something and that they would recall it by saying, yeah, I remember how that felt. It was horrible. It was bad. And I remember that. That shows that their brain has been able to process it, integrate it, and now it is located in the long-term network, memory network of the hippocampus. So those people who deal with trauma are actually dealing with an experience that they've never been able, the brain has never been able to integrate. Mm. And so that experience remains subject to present moment triggers, Mm. things that can happen in the present moment that triggers that experience. And it's as if they're right in it. The past is alive. It's happening right now. It really gets difficult and where it really gets sticky is when there's really no memory connected to this. Mm. Could be, for instance, something that happened early in life, a pre-verbal incident in infancy where the you know medical emergency and an infant is held down and jabbed full of needles and going to be able, they don't have any language at that time. There's no way they can actually have an explicit memory of that. But the horror and the fear that that infant experienced can be triggered in other experiences as they get older. And it can be something as simple as a white coat. It can, you know, because that memory is it's stored implicitly, not explicitly. An implicit memory is encoded in the body and in the emotions. So it comes up oftentimes as something we feel in the body or something we feel emotionally, but may have no recollection of a memory or an event that even attached to it. Mm. And I think in my way of thinking, this happens sometimes when a person has a panic attack. In that moment, something in the present, something in their environment has triggered an old implicitly stored traumatic memory and the feelings, the horror, the fear, the shame, the rage, whatever it was, comes bubbling or breaking into the present moment experience. And they have no idea, no connection, no memory, no context to put this thing in. All they know is I was at Meyer and I was in the checkout line and I had a meltdown. And I'm not going back to Meyer. Mm. But it had nothing to do with Meyer. Mm. Everything to do with a 
an implicitly held or stored memory being triggered in the present moment and flooding into their experience in such a powerful way that they're just absolutely devastated and overwhelmed by it. Which, Kevin, as you alluded to earlier, often leads people to agoraphobia. They won't even leave their house. Hmm. They stay in some place that's just absolutely familiar, comfortable, and safe because they're terrified of, of that experience happening again. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, go ahead. You, you, uh, you, uh, you hit on triggers a little bit. Triggers, obviously, whatever, using the word in the explanation, whatever triggers that emotion, triggers that response which could be rage, it could be, you know, shelling up and just not wanting to leave a house. And, and, and I've seen that, uh, obviously, working with teenagers for close to eight years in, in just ministry. I've seen that in teenagers where, where they're comfortable, they're comfortable. And where they are not, they are not. And they, and they don't have an explanation for it. They just know, you know what I'm saying? They just know socially there is a block they get panic attacks. I've seen the panic attacks happen. And so I know it's, it, it's a very real thing for, I mean, all ages. And, 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 and I like that you say that. It could be even in the infancy stage and we don't have an answer for it. What I do know is that triggers can cause us to react in a way where we do ruin relationships and we do cause setbacks, whether it's a family relationship with a family member, whether it's a, a romantic relationship, whether it's a working environment. Like I said, I, I quit two or three jobs in a row on the spot. You know what I'm saying? And so, and that, that just isn't who I was. That's not the kind of guy that I am. And so to be, to be doing that, obviously that caused more damage to me, but it caused damage to the people that were in the wake of all those decisions that I was making. And so with that being said, you know, you've even told me, you know, when I'm like, I just got to be a better version of myself. You've literally told me, don't be a better you, be a new you, you know, because, you know, God's calling us to be a new creation. What would you say to somebody who feels like their triggers have caused them to ruin relationships? How can they begin to repair that? Yeah. Wow. That's, man, that's, now that's where the rubber meets the road right there because, you know, relationships that's that's where we all live right i mean we all have yeah. those important relationships so first of all let me say this one of the things that happens to us when we are triggered and are having a traumatic reaction so we're in the middle of a full blown fight or flight response okay or we are shut down, we have collapsed, we can't talk, we can't communicate. Um, when those things happen, research from neuroscience has shown us that we literally lose a, or, or we have a diminished capacity to, to connect with our higher functioning or the higher functioning areas of the brain specifically the prefrontal cortex, which lies right in our forehead. This has been called the grand central station of the brain. It is so important. For instance, it's what says to me or, and you when we're angry or whatever, you know, I shouldn't say that. That's crossing the line. I'm not going to say that. That's going to hurt them. You know, that's not good. It's also the part of our brain that says, if I do this behavior – Man, the consequences for this, I'm just, I don't want to go there. We actually lose our ability when we're triggered to access that part of the brain. Yeah. 
think about their think about their the repercussions of that. So I'm triggered. And in my days, you guys have shared your story. In my days, when I was triggered, I would go into a rage. And when I would go into a rage and I would lose that capacity of my brain to just filter my words, actions, and all of that, I, I just would say and do just about anything in that moment. Yeah. I didn't think about the consequences. I didn't think about the fact that this is going to hurt my wife until it was over and I began to become, you know, it's called, when we're triggered, by the way, another, another term that we use for that is uh, we're autonomically dysregulated. So we're out of sync. We're totally dysregulated. When we're in that state, we lose or we have a greatly diminished capacity to access those higher level areas of the brain. And so we, were, we will often violate and transgress our own moral codes, our own value systems that we live by and believe in, even as Christians, because in that moment, we, we're not even able to really think about it. Right. So first of all, no, that is not a get-out-of-jail-free card. You know, it, it, we still yeah. have to take responsibility and own what we do. That's yeah. just that's just it. But all secondly, three of us are married here, so we know that. <laughs> we know that. <laughs> yeah, right. That's true. Yeah, yeah. We know that Mama's not going to let us just. Uh, you know, no, she ain't. <laughs> yeah, right. We got to make some reparations. Mama's but mad. <laughs> Mama is mad, and that's which means we're not happy. Right. But the thing is, one of the things that I try to do is help. I don't work with couples anymore, but I always try in a trauma situation, I always do try to help the other, the spouse of a trauma victim to understand why they do some of the things they do. And sometimes that understanding just gives them the ability to have some compassion. Mm-hmm. Uh, honestly, sometimes by the I'm working with them, the marriage is a train wreck and it's, it's pretty much done, you know, but all we can do, Kyle, in that situation is work on resolving our trauma, which is hard work, which is painful work. Yeah. And by showing our spouse or showing our children, we lo- I love you so much. I'm going to go through this pain so that I can be a better dad. I can be a better husband and I can be a better me. I can be a new me, right? The me that God created me to be. Yeah. That's who we all want to be. And all we can do is do our best to, you know, almost like the 12 step program, you know, make amends. How can I, how can I say, I'm sorry, what can I do to help you try to forgive me? Right. But there's actual scientific, you know, data that supports that sometimes when a person is dysregulated, they're going to say and do things that they would never say or do when they're in a healthy state of mind. So trauma survivors typically have a long history of very poor relationships. It's one of the common things you see. Yeah. Doctor, is there anything to say about people who maybe didn't go through a traumatic thing like rape or war or tragic accident, a car accident or something like that? Because some of the things that you're saying is, is making me feel like that you cannot go through maybe something like that, but still have another kind of trauma and still really suffer with PTSD or some type of trauma disorder. You know, uh, you know, I think about people who are maybe in abusive 
relationships or who have been in the past or people who, you know, you know, because I feel like people act out, you know, because I and I'll just say this and this is a very mild thing, but I just from from your perspective, I'd like to hear what you have to say. I know somebody who was made fun of all of their life up until adulthood, like just every single school they went to, they were the kid that got made fun of. To this day, this person is very sensitive. They have people around them who love them, but they they are so sensitive to almost everything because, you know, even when you joke with this person, their response is very, uh, it's almost like, well, you know, like it makes them angry, even if the person who's doing it to them is, you know, a, a person who loves them, right? So, so is that, uh, could that be a sense of trauma that happened? Or what, what, would, what would you say about that? Oh, yeah. Kevin, I am, I'm so glad you brought that up because I hadn't even thought uh, about this, and this is so important. So you're absolutely right. So when we think of trauma, we can actually categorize it in two different ways. Capital T trauma, and capital T trauma is what we've already been talking about. Violence, you know, horrible, horrible, horrible things that happen. And then small t trauma. Small t trauma is also referred to as relational trauma or attachment trauma or mental trauma. And the difference would be, very simply put, in capital T trauma, it's when something bad happens to us that we don't deserve. Mm -hmm. Small T trauma, it's when we don't get what we needed. Mm. It's what we need developmentally, nurturing, emotional availability, love Mm. and affect, all those things. People can actually have PTSD symptoms from that form of small t trauma. And as a matter of fact, there was a group of very well-known, internationally renowned trauma therapists, Besser van der Kolk among them, who pushed really, really hard for a brand new diagnosis to be entered into the DSM-5, and which is the Diagnostic and Statistic Manual, and which we, you know, doctors and um, psychiatrists and therapists use to, you know, to try to ascertain what might, you know, it's like a list of diagnostic diagnostic criteria. Well, he pushed really, really hard in it. It just didn't get in this time, but they're thinking about the next version. It will a new trauma disorder called developmental trauma disorder. Mm. Yeah. He was very disappointed that it didn't make it this time. And that's how seriously, the internationally renowned experts in trauma, how seriously they take developmental issues when children are either abused or they're just emotionally neglected or they have a parent who has a mental illness and that parent isn't able to be there for them present in emotional ways. Mm. The parent's not able to respond to them the way they need them to respond to. And there is so much scientific research that shows that the human brain is a relational organ. It is a relationally developing organ. And if the relationship isn't as it should be, then the human brain 
a child's brain doesn't fully develop in the way that it's intended by God to develop. And a lot of what these kids are, you know, experience, they grow up into adulthood. And I usually see them in my office presenting with a lot of the exact same symptoms we're talking about. Uh, as a matter of fact, Vanderkolk and others say that working with developmental trauma is more difficult to treat than the capital T trauma. And would that be because there's an absence of what was supposed to be? Yeah. And oftentimes then there's no sort of event or nothing that a, a, a person can put their finger on. I've, I've had them look me right in the eye and say, I don't know why I'm so depressed. And I'll say, well, tell me your childhood and your, how, how was everything? Oh, I had a perfect childhood, perfectly normal childhood. Mom and dad are still married. Blah, blah, no, no abuse, none of this, none of that. And then I'll look at them and I'll say, well, talk about how mom and dad related to you. Like, do you remember lots of affection, lots of hugs, lots of kisses, lots of you're my special person, that kind of thing? And they almost without exception will get quiet. And here's what I'll usually hear. Well, I, I, don't, I don't really remember a lot of that, but I'm sure it was there. And that's when I know now we got, we've, got to, we've got some developmental trauma going on here because they don't, if those things happen regularly in childhood, you remember it. Yeah. It's a part of experience and you remember it. If you can't recall it, it's because it didn't happen. Mm. And uh, it's a very difficult thing for somebody to say or to admit to is that, wow, my mom or my dad, they, they really didn't give me what I needed. That's hard to say that. Yeah, it's huge. I mean, I'm sure there's people that are listening that are in a state of depression or a bout of anxiety or some sort of trauma-related symptom, symptomatic, you know, result, and they're thinking, I really don't know why. I've had a great life. I've had a great upbringing. I, I didn't lack in anything. And, and that, personally, that's where I found myself thinking, like, what are you talking about, man? I've had a pretty darn good life, you know? And and you just don't, you don't realize how that lowercase t in the trauma is huge. Yeah. Doctor, it sounds like they can show up in some of the best of circumstances. And I say that, I guess, in quotations, but think about parents that are affluent parents or, you know, parents that have a lot of money. And my wife and I know somebody who their mom and dad both are doctors. One of them is an infectious disease doctor. And they're always gone, but they're very wealthy and their kids have every, you know, electronic thing you could possibly think of. But we constantly think about how these kids are not seeing their parents on a, you know, on a regular basis. And so even though if you were to ask that kid at 25 years old, you know, hey, you know, how, how was your childhood? Well, how was your, oh man, we had everything, you know, you know, they always provided for us. They, they loved us, you know, whatever. But then you would, like you said, you would ask them, you know, how much affection did your parents show? Well, they're not going to have much to say because mom and dad were working and couldn't show it. Right. They're growing up with the nanny. Right. So, you know, so that's, I can totally see how that would, uh, how that would be. You know, Kevin, you just brought up a really good point there. And I think about this, but let's bring this home into where it is really close for all three of us. And that is bring this to the church mm. and up in the church. Yeah. And 
thing was always a standing joke. And then I went to a Bible college where there was a lot of good kids there. And there were a lot of ministers and pastors' kids there. And they were the most troubled. Mm-hmm. And almost without a doubt, there were, and I don't mean to in, imply that all pastors' children have issues. But one of the things that I have seen and I've worked with pastors' kids professionally is the very same thing we're talking about. As a matter of fact, one of them looked at me and said, my dad was a lot better pastor than he was a father. Wow. Yeah. You know, and what, you know, what a sad sort of indictment, because if we don't minister to our kids, if we don't do that well, you know, wow. But this is, I think sometimes pastors who are just so busy that they spend more time loving on church people than they do their own kids. They just don't have anything left over. Right. And that's a very scary thing. And I think as, I think as you know, today we need to really be honest about that and have really honest conversations with ministers and pastors about that, because this is a big, big deal. Mm. Jeff, man, you hit on something there, man. So, I mean, I, I grew up as a pastor's kid. And I, you know, have served as a senior pastor too. So, and, and I will tell you, I mean, it, it affected me, you know, but I also grew up in an era where my dad and my parents were of the age or the generation where they didn't show a lot of like outward affection. You know, it, there was not a lot of, you know, good boy, you did a great job, man, we love you. You know, there wasn't a lot of that, even though I knew you know, and for our listeners, I'm, I'm holding up quotations, but the uh, fingers, I knew that they loved me. The issue was those things weren't always said or always felt on a constant basis, you know? And so, you know, later on, those things show up, you know, and it's, and it's, they didn't know necessarily how to do that because they didn't get it right. You know, they're, they're a product of, of how they were raised. And so, I think sometimes these things can be generational, and I think someone has to rise up in their generation and say, you know, when I have kids, all those things that I was missing, you know, I'm going to do as much of it as I can because I want, because that's the way I've been my, I've got two girls, and I can't imagine not showing them affection, not showing them love, not, you know, not giving them the attention that they deserve because if I don't, I can only imagine where that would go once they're, you know, once they're older. So I just, you know, it, it's incredible. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, good for you that you realize that and that you're, you know, sort of, sort of, uh, not repeating that generationally like some of us do Yeah, yeah. of that generation too, you know, where they weren't very outwardly affectionate and interestingly enough if i'm hearing you correctly yours were the same and you and i have suffered from anxiety disorder yeah so it's interesting there's a connection i think yeah 100 percent. yeah yeah so jeff i want to leave you with this last question here we've talked a lot about different types of issues mentally emotionally you know physiologically physically when we know somebody is struggling, whether it's with anxiety, it's depression, it looks like it may be trauma-related, we can see that they're acting out. When we know someone is struggling, what is the best way that we can help them? 
What are some of the ways that we can help them? Yeah. Well, honestly, pointing them, getting them some, or, or encouraging them to seek help. Mm-hmm. Them to seek help. Most of the time, and I don't know what the statistics are, but in my own practice, and I've been told this is fairly consistent, it's usually about 80, 20, 75, 25 women to men. <laughs> so usually you're going to see about 75 to 80% women because women are much more comfortable with coming and talking about what they're feeling and what's going on. And men oftentimes are less inclined to do so. And we've sort of been enculturated, right. And indoctrinated by our society and our culture that big boys don't cry, you know, that we suck it up, you know, this rugged American individualism, all of this. So it's, I find it's a little, when I'm usually working with men, they've been suffering for a long time before they finally said, you know what, I can't do this anymore, right? Mm-hmm. So able to have an honest and very transparent and vulnerable conversation with somebody and say, hey, look, I've been there. You know, it's no, it's not a weakness to go and seek help. You know, trying to overcome that stigma that's attached to mental health therapy and counseling that, you know, that's for the weak, broken people who can't figure it out. You know, that kind of, well, that's pretty much most of us Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) are weak, broken, and we really don't have it figured out. And what's wrong with going and talking to somebody, point them in the direction of help and be very transparent and vulnerable as much as the relationship sort of allows in its appropriateness. And let them know where you've been and what's worked for you. Because pastors, I think, are realizing, I'm learning this too, I'm getting more and more referrals from pastors because pastors are recognizing, you know, the problems people are coming to me with now are just outside of my scope of practice. I mean, it's, they, I I can't, I can't speak to that. It's getting, even within the church, the, the issues are so complex yeah. You know, oh, go get some help. Go seek a professional. Um, and, and I'm, I'm going to say this, even though I know this is a Christian program. I'm one of those therapists who say, only go seek out a Christian professional. Don't go to anyone else. Mm-hmm. I'm telling you that there are some excellent therapists out there who aren't necessarily Christian in their orientation. I have been to several of them, and they have helped me immensely. Yeah. So, if you know you can't get in to see a Christian professional for whatever reason, don't let that limit you and keep you from going. Awesome. Absolutely. Doctor, and I know we're, you know, we're almost out of time here, but doctor, what about the people who say things like, you know, cause you go to church and they say, you know, why don't you just cast your cares on Jesus? You know, why are you, you know, why, well, you just, you know, you need to have more faith, you know, you need to pray more you need to, you know, all of these things, that are said in church, we get real churchy, uh, you know, when people start saying, oh, I'm depressed or I have whatever. What would you say to somebody? Because I feel like a lot of people feel guilty. They're like, well, I don't want to say that I, I go to a counselor. Or I don't want to say I'm on medication or I don't want to say, you know, all of these things because they're like, it just shows that I don't have a good relationship with God or I'm not trusting the scriptures and I'm not all of these things that we've heard that truly has kept people out of offices like yours, which 
is a, tra- a tragedy, truly. I, I, I think so many people could be helped. So what would you say to those, those people? Yeah, well, first I would say to those people who are telling others you need more faith, you, uh, you know, you just need to trust God more. You know, I have two clinically uh, valuable words. Stop it. You know, quit. <laughs> um, and, for, and for those who are feeling that way, to understand, I think, one of the things I think that Jesus modeled more than anything else was a wounded healer sort of model. Jesus did not try to come across as somebody who was so that had everything so together and was perfect in so many ways and wouldn't show his chinks in his armor. And, you know, Jesus was very real with people. When he was at the tomb of Lazarus, he wept like a baby. Mm-hmm. He went over Jerusalem. He <laughs> sort of had a, men- a meltdown at the temple, which I think if we would have done today in our culture, what he did, we would have got arrested. And, so Jesus was very comfortable just being who he was and just understanding, you know, his feelings and all that kind of stuff. But there, there's nowhere that I can find, and maybe somebody else can can refute this, but in my studies, I've never seen anything in the scriptures that indicates that when we are feeling wounded or broken, that we are less Christian or less spiritual as a matter of fact, I've read a lot of wonderful books that say just the opposite. Hmm. The most spiritually dynamic people they've known are those who are in touch with their brokenness. And isn't that what isn't that what the Apostle Paul talked about in First uh, Corinthians? I think it was First Corinthians when he said that you know what I'm going to embrace and celebrate my weaknesses because when I'm weak, Christ's strength is made perfect in me. Yeah. So how would we reconcile that scripture with embracing your weakness and saying, don't go get help because you should just go to God? Embracing our weaknesses means so much more than that. And it means sometimes we need help. Yeah. And, and I'll say one final comment about that. When Jesus comes into our lives, when he saves us, he doesn't remove all of our baggage mm-hmm. take away all that happened before we came to the cross. He forgives all of our sin. Mm-hmm. But I remove the baggage and the expectation now that I'm saved, my sins are forgiven. Therefore I should have no baggage. I can't find that in scripture anywhere. Yeah, absolutely. And I've said this before on the show and Kyle knows I, I love saying this and because, you know, you look at Luke in the Bible, Luke was a physician. Jesus was walking around and healing everything that moved. There's nowhere in scripture where you see Jesus rebuking Luke for being a physician. You know, he, he didn't, you know, he didn't say, he didn't say, you know, Luke, what, what are you doing, man? I'm here now. You know, <laughs> I mean, that, that you know. And so when, when, you know, there was, there was just a moment when I was reading the scripture that just came to me and I said, man, I said, this is what has hindered so many people are not, you know, the same intelligence that God has given you and God has given other doctors, whether it be just regular medical doctors, whatever the case may be, 
their intelligence has to come from God. He's the one mm. that created our brains. He's the one that, you know, and so, you know, we, 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 we're going against the very thing that he's created. So I think um, we, we just have to know that it's, it's okay. It's okay to go get help. You know, when you had, Kevin, when your throat was swelling up, yeah, you run to the church and to the altar. You right. Have to, right? <laughs> That's and, right, uh, brother. I bet, I bet your wife is glad you did, and I bet yeah. you're glad you did. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, 100%. Well, awesome. You heard it here, guys. Listen, we need help. Man, humankind needs help, and if you're looking for, for somewhere to go, we've got Dr. Jeff Caldwell and the Wounded Heart Counseling information on our website at thinkingoutloudmedia.com. The best way to reach uh, the Wounded Heart Counseling, they have a website themselves, but the best way to reach them right now while that is under construction is uh, 734-777. 3315, that's their office. Uh, you can leave them a voicemail, or if they answer, you can go ahead and, and try to get on their waiting list. The one thing that's good, and I think you've even alluded to it, you're not going to do anything that doesn't make sense for the client. And so I know just from our experience, you, there's a session where you see if that's even a fit or if maybe a, refer, a referral is needed. Either way, you're getting help. You're getting the help that you need. You're making sure that you're getting exactly what you need. And so Dr. Caldwell, thank you, man. I, I really do appreciate you coming on the show and You're you know, welcome. giving us a little snippet. If, if, I, if I may, Kyle, because of the, you know, we're right now, I mean, I'm, I'm the only therapist in our office. The other therapist left recently. So, yeah, we do have a waiting list and we can't really tell anyone exactly how long that would be. If you need help, please seek it out. If you're in this area and you're wanting to come see me and, and you can't get in there soon, a great resource is to go to psychologytoday.com and then click on therapist finder, mm. put in your zip code, and you can it pulls up all the therapists in the area, their bios, how what they specialize in, what insurances they take. So that's another really good resource you might want to check out if you don't want to wait. You know, if you if you're trying to get in somewhere. So. Awesome. Well, thank you. You're welcome. Thanks for having me, guys. This was great. Absolutely. So we're excited that we have had the counselor on uh, today, and I know because I'll tell you right now, it was a huge help to me. I learned some stuff. I know a lot of you probably have learned some things today as well. You know, call Jeff again. Go to this psychologytoday.com if you need help you know right away and you need to get in somewhere but also we're here for you as well and so if you have any other questions or anything like that you know let us know and we can do what we can to you know direct you into the right areas and so don't forget go to our facebook page like that page it's a think it out loud podcast you know twitter we're on twitter we're on Instagram, Facebook. We're everywhere. We're embarrassingly easy to find. And uh, we appreciate we appreciate all you guys listening every single week. And listen, make it a great week. We love you guys. We'll see you next week. <laughs>